Welcome to Nature's Touch. Climate change is here. I'm your host, Robert Lundahl. There's almost no place more remote than the Pribilof Islands. Located 250 miles north of the Aleutians, in the middle of the Bering Sea, it's a hugely productive, high-latitude marine ecosystem. Unfortunately, its human history has a dark underbelly. Exploited by Russians and Americans alike during the fur trade, the Onangan, or Aleut people, barely survived World War II in U.S. internment camps. The years since have been about re-establishing life on the islands that sustained them for over 10,000 years. Larry Merkuliev is a traditional messenger in today's world. First of all, I would say Ang Wan, which is hello, my other self, which is the way that our people greet each other all the time. And um, my, uh, I, I am a Nungan, which is in Western terms, uh, Aleut, but we don't call ourselves that because that was the name given to us by our former oppressors. Uh, and uh, so, so it, it, it means like, um, like the Yupik and the Inupiat and the Diné and all these other groups in Alaska, um, Unungan means the people. And uh, in this case, um, we are the people by the sea. And um, we have a very rich history uh, where we were the only people that didn't have footwear, even in the wintertime. And uh, we uh, didn't have any food storage technologies except for air drying. I, I, I feel that, um, I believe that uh, we are the only Alaskan Native group that didn't have any food storage technologies. And um, we um, have been out in the Bering Sea for over 10,000 years and we're still there. And I was born and raised on St. Paul Island, part of the Pribilof Island in the middle of the Bering Sea that is not part of the Aleutian chain, uh, but is, is in the middle, up above the Aleutian chain, about 250 miles. Uh, from the nearest land uh, along the Aleutian chain. And um, this is, a, I was born and raised on an island that's uh, very small. It's 12 miles wide and, and uh, uh, 12 miles long and five miles wide. Um, and we had, we had at, when I was a child, about 1.2 million northern fur seals and two and a half million seabirds, a thousand reindeer and uh, 500 Dunungan people. It was welcome in the region when the Obama administration, in an executive order, withdrew areas in Arctic waters and the Bering Sea from oil and gas drilling and established the Northern Bering Sea Climate Resilience Area. Subsequently, the order was revoked. Then, in 2021, the incoming Biden administration reestablished the original border, which according to the Bering Sea Elders Group, provides a pathway for Alaska tribes to exercise self-determination 
But according to Ilarion Merkuliev, Unangan cultural leader, that day is not yet here. December 9th, 2016. So this was the original White House executive order. Arctic environmental stewardship is in the national interests. It furthers, sorry, in furtherance of this principle and as articulated in the March 10th, 2016 U.S.-Canada Joint Statement on Climate, Energy, and Arctic Leadership, the United States has resolved to confront challenges in a changing Arctic by working to conserve Arctic biodiversity, support, and engage Alaska Native tribes, incorporate traditional knowledge into decision-making, and build a sustainable Arctic economy that relies on the highest safety and environmental standards, including adherence to national climate goals. So, um, so what happened in 2016? They put this forward and then it, it was revoked under the Trump administration, is that correct? As far as we know. Mm-hmm. And then when we were talking the other day, you said that things had really changed and that the tribal communities along the, uh, the Bering Sea had gotten together to provide um, management, resource management. Am I saying that correctly? No. No? Okay. That's, that's, that's what we're striving for, but you know, we're, we're not anywhere near there. I see. What needs to take place? Well, for one thing, we need allies, and we need finance, financial wherewithal to be able to bring all the regions together to uh, uh, discuss this and come up with a plan and implement the plan. I mean, this, uh, you know, the regions don't have much money, and so they are only concentrating on issues within their borders. And uh, this, the Bering Sea ecosystem requires all of these entities to be involved mm -hmm. so, that, so that we can uh, have a voice on what, what is being done in the Bering Sea uh, rather than having an individual region talk about what they want. We talk about what we want in the Bering Sea as mm -hmm. native people. My, my traditional name was given to me at four years old by the last Kuyak that was left alive amongst my people. He gave me his, his name, and uh, this is something that had been passed along from generations. And uh, we would call each other Kuyak. And um, uh, that, that name means like an arm extending out from the body a carrier of ancient knowledge into modern times, a messenger. This is Robin Carnina of Namapa First Peoples Radio. Thanks for joining Robert Lindahl and myself for a campfire conversation on nature's touch. Worried about climate change and other environmental issues? So are we. Thanks for tuning in. We all can make a difference. To get to know my grandfather and for my grandfather to get to know me, I had to be with him 24 seven. 
for two years, starting at age four. Um, and uh, I, went, uh, I went to work with him. Uh, at that time, they were, they were slaves of the federal government. And, um, uh, but nevertheless, he would take me to work with him. Every day, I would drink tea with him and, and his friends every night. Um, I would pray with him every day where we'd go down to the Bering Sea and take off our shirts and spray ourselves with the Bering Sea, praying towards the east. And that evening, we might go to the Russian Orthodox Church. He didn't see any, any uh, importance in where one got one's spirituality. He taught me the, the basics of why and how my people uh, survived and thrived in the Bering Sea for over 10,000 years. Um, and it, it was a, a day, I mean, the Primaloff Islands are called the birthplace of the winds. So we get wind all the time. But in this day, it was perfectly calm. There was no wind. Uh, the sea was perfectly flat and there was no cloud in the sky. We get 20 days of sunshine a year in, in the Bering Sea. Uh, and so this day was very unusual. And the seals were barking and the, and the, the birds were singing. And, and uh, I just, at four years old, I, I had to remark in Unangintunu, uh, the, the Aleut language, I, I said something like, it's sure beautiful. And he just puts his finger to his lips and says, Tutuda. And what he, and that's all he said. And what he said uh, probably encapsulates why our people survived and thrived in Bering Sea for over 10,000 years. And that is that uh, we should listen. Um, and not remark because as soon as we say a word about or try to express our feelings, we diminish the experience. So the most important of human experiences um, are not to be um, vocalized, that, that we need to just take it all in. And um, that's the way my people were, that we developed the most densely populated linear mile of shoreline in, in North America for our time in a place that's hard to eke out a living. And, uh, and the reason for that is that uh, my people understood that we had to be present in the moment and in the heart. The rest will be taken care of. And it requires a trust in every aspect of being a human being that we had to embody this trust at the cellular level where we trusted in ourselves, our lives, um, um, uh, trust in, in our community, trust in uh, the land, the sea, trust in the uh, Mother Earth universe and, and uh, the person, the, 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 the being that we call a role, um, uh, that we need to, to trust at such a level that, um, that there was not a shred of a doubt in our bodies. And with that kind of trust, 
everything is taken care of if you're in the heart and present in the moment. Um, and that's, that's uh, the way my people were. Um, and when I asked my elder on St. Paul, he was uh, Father Lestenkoff, he said, uh, you know, look at, look at the birds. You think that they worry about where they're going to get their food the next day? And are we any different? And of course, the answer is no, that we are not any different, uh, that the animals don't worry about where they're going to get their food the next day. And people, we've forgotten what our niche is, so we've deviated from that norm uh, of, of knowing or not, not worrying about where our food is going to come from. And uh, that's uh, a very rich upbringing that I had. I mean, my generation was the last generation and had a very traditional upbringing where uh, all people in the village, all adults in the village literally raised me. Uh, and every day when I would walk out, starting at four years old, uh, uh, you know, if I encountered an adult, they always affirmed me. Uh, good boy. Uh, and that's where I was greeted by every adult every day from age, age four to age uh, 13. Um, that was quite uh, a way to grow up. Then I'd be greeted in, in everybody's household like the long lost son whenever I went there. You know, I would, a day or night, I would go to um, a house and they would say, Come in, sit down, eat. That's the way I was greeted every day. And um, uh, I had to spend equal time with the men, equal time with the women, with the elders, and with my peers. And so with the elders, they would take me out camping with them every time they went out camping. And, and I would hear their stories for years, from age 5 to age 13. And um, the men would take me out hunting and fishing with them and teach me the men's ways. The women would teach me the women's ways. Um, and, uh, of course, with my peers, all I had to do was play. And the adult's job was to create the space for me to learn, not tell me what to learn, how to learn, or to define anything. I grew up not asking a, a single question. I had to depend upon myself. And the ingenuity of it is that uh, we are allowed as children to expand out to the maximum of our capability without the dictates of an adult. Um, and uh, nowadays we, we do the opposite, where we uh, tell the, the kids what, we need, what they need to learn, how they need to learn it, teach them how to learn it. And, uh, and so over time we're dumbed down as human beings. Um, and so anyway, um, that's where I grew up, and I was never scolded. Um, 
Uh, most people have were scolded when they were kids. Uh, our people did not believe in scolding kids because we are considered spirit beings in human form. And as spirit beings, we're easily traumatized. And so we have to be very careful about what we say and how we say it. And um, so that's that, in essence, is the kind of upbringing I had. I have one question. And I think it's important as a story to tell non-Native people. And, and that was your perception as a young man, and you told me the story previously of being six years old and going down to the bird cliffs, but you, you mentioned how it is that you can get a sense of a place uh, so rich with so many animals and so much activity. Can you tell me that story again? Yeah. Um, you know, this is an island that's 12 miles long and five miles wide. You have a million point two for a northern fur seal and two and a half million seabirds. So all this life is concentrated on the periphery of the island. It's quite intense, but a beautiful place for a child to be, to be raised. Anyway, um, as part of my upbringing, I could wander anywhere I wanted, day or night, unsupervised by an adult. Uh, the only time the adult would intervene is if they were concerned about our safety. But so I, uh, I loved uh, the seabirds. And so I decided when I was six years old that I'm going to walk out of the village uh, three miles is the nearest bird cliff uh, of intensity. Uh, so I would walk out to the, the village three miles at, in, at nighttime at three o'clock in the morning to get there before sunrise. And uh, because at sunrise, the birds stir off the cliffs. And, and uh, they are, I mean, we had all kinds of species, you know, thick-billed murres, common murres, least octopus, crested octopus, tufted puffin, horned puffin. Uh, all of these kinds of birds, are, they, they were just a cacophony of sound that I cannot describe to you. Uh, but when you get underneath the cliff, I would cross over large basalt boulders and you know, to get underneath the cliff and then sun, sun would peek out and then the birds would start stirring and flying and they would circle in front of the, the, the cliffs uh, waiting to collect members of their own species before they go out foraging. So here's all these species flying at different heights, different speeds, um, and diagonally right, diagonally left. I mean, it was apparent chaos. But uh, I noticed when I was six years old that they never even clipped a wing. And uh, you can't imagine, there must have been at least 10,000 seabirds underneath that cliff. 10,000 seabirds and none of them even hit each other. They didn't even clip a wing. And so I wonder how do birds do that? You know, and I was six years old and I said, well, um, birds don't think. And so I said, I want to be a bird. And so I focused on not thinking for maybe two months 
until I got it where I wouldn't have a single thought running through my head um, uh, for hours, and I can still do that today. And um, th it was just magical. Then the hunters would take me out hunting with them. There'd be four or five hunters uh, in the group, and we would go out to the edge of the island and wait for stellar sea lions to come by. Uh, and sometimes we'd wait for seven, eight hours for one sea lion to come by. And the, the ocean that we're facing is 180 degrees of ocean. We're on an island. And, uh, you know, by noontime, I mean, we'd get out there very early in the morning just at sunrise, just like uh, I did with the bird cliffs. And, and uh, the, I noticed by noontime, I would get sleepy and daydreaming, but the hunters, they never did. And they weren't talking very much. They weren't moving very much. They were just sitting on the basalt boulder, looking out to see for a sea lion to come by. And, um, and that's all. And by, by noon, you know, I'd get daydreamy or sleepy or whatever, but the men never did. And I wondered, how could they do that? That's magical. And then, um, then I noticed that uh, one hunter would say, Kawakako, sea lion coming. And instantly, and I mean instantly, all the men would look at one spot in the ocean. Out of 180 degrees of ocean, the sea lion could be anywhere in that water but they looked at one spot and so i looked and i looked and i looked and didn't see a sea lion until about you know they the men still were looking at that place very intently so i knew that there there must be it must be there and sure enough the sea lion would pop up between five and ten minutes uh after that person said kawakako and the sea lion would appear right where they said and i thought that was really magical until I, I realized that what the birds taught me, uh, the, uh, the, the, the hunters already knew and that uh, uh, I was never told any stories about this. I just found that out. And so um, what, what the birds were doing was what I decided to do when I went out hunting was to stop thinking. And as soon as I did that, that's when the magic happened. I could feel the sea line uh, before it appears, where it's going to appear from. And then I applied that same uh, understanding to fishing where we use hook, line, and sinker to fish for halibut. And same magic happened where I could feel the halibut before it hit the line. I can tell you um, uh, when, it, when it, bites the line, it bites the bait, whether or not I hook it with by the lip or the jaw or the side of the body. I can tell you what size it is, three foot, four foot, five foot halibut. I can tell you generally uh, whether or not it's male or female and how it's going to fight on the way up. And all of this information um, is very necessary for a good hunter and fisherman. You have to have these abilities if you're going to be good at what you're doing. Um, uh, and 
all the men were good at it because they had to be uh, uh, where they were getting food for the village for their families extended families and for elders and for widows and so uh, being a good hunter and fisherman was very important um, and ever ever since then i would use that not not thinking in in whatever i do and uh, it has led me successfully through all of the trials and tribulations of life where um, now i am uh, what 71 years old and i still use it um, that it guides me in what i do uh, this is probably what people call faith but it's a faith to a degree that most people don't understand it's a faith that is embodied at the cellular level and that when you are that way and you are in the heart and present in the moment the rest is taken care of ever since i've done that everything that i needed was provided for uh, every year and, and I, I i can't explain that uh, ex except that that's how my people survived and thrived in Bering Sea for over 10,000 years. You speak with a lot of groups and, and college groups and these kinds of things. And do you feel with people that have not had this experience that they have difficulty understanding or imagining? Or do they have a way to connect with what you're saying is that does the lesson get across to more urban people or well, not from St. Paul? It's kind of like uh, trying to uh, ask a two-dimensional being to look at the third dimension. You can't imagine it until you experience it. And so with, with the students, like I'm a visiting scholar at Columbia University, for example, I, I lead them through processes where they can experience it uh, and uh, initially they might experience it for 30 seconds or even less 15 seconds but uh, once they do that they have an idea of what this means to be um, not focused on the head uh, and traditionally uh, people in Alaska uh, we uh, would say that the heart would tell the mind what to do. And the mind's job is to implement what your heart is telling you. And today we reverse that, uh, where the mind is telling the heart what to do. And, uh, and the Yupik elders call this the reverse society or the inside out society because we reversed all the laws for living. And one of the most salient ones is that the mind is now in charge uh, when the heart used to be in charge. This is Robin Carneen of Namapa First Peoples Radio. Thanks for sitting by our campfire at Nature's Touch. Please join Robert Lindahl next time as he continues to share important conversations about climate change and other environmental issues. If you'd like to contact Robert, please email him at robert at studio-rla.com. Be kind to Mother Earth. It's the only one we have.
Thank you for tuning in today. This has been part one of my interview with Hilarion Merkuliev. Visit us on our website at climatechangeshere.com. I'm your host, filmmaker, and journalist, Robert Lundahl.